It's said that after uh, the Buddha was awakened, he was reluctant to teach. It's said um, in perhaps legends that survive that um, for the 49 days after his awakening, he basically hung out in the area where he was awakened and to enjoy the bliss of his awakening. And um, there's various things he did. Every seven days he changed, did something different during those seven weeks. And uh, one of those days, one of those weeks, it said that um, he basically stood uh, stood away from the tree under which he was enlightened, the Bodhi tree, and uh, bowed to it, expressed his gratitude uh, to the tree under which that uh, he had attained his liberation. And um, can you hear out in the hallways? Are working out there? It's not working out there. Why don't you all come in here? There's probably space in here for you if you want, or bring the chairs in here. We'll make space. So there's one chair up, two chairs up there on the stage, and two chairs over here, a chair in the back. So in the seven weeks after his enlightenment, the Buddha basically stayed there in his, where he was and enjoyed the bliss of his enlightenment. And it said that um, he was reluctant to teach because he felt that uh, no one would understand what he had to teach or what he had experienced. That there were, maybe, maybe he wasn't sure how you would teach it, uh, his awakening, his freedom. And uh, you can maybe get very quickly a little sense of the difficulty of it if you want to try to uh, explain to someone uh, what it's like to have a sense of presence. Uh, uh, if you have a real sense of being present, real, what does that feel like? I just said it, right? So, But what does that feel like? Try to explain that. And, um, and maybe you can do it. I don't know. I, I feel a little bit challenged to explain what a strong sense of presence is like in some clear, definitive way. So the Buddha was reluctant to, um, to speak. Um, and then it said that um, Brahma, who is the kind of the Zeus of the Indian pantheon, the great Brahma, intervened. And um, uh, Brahma said something like, um, well, ask, please, you know, please open the gates of the deathless. The deathless being a synonym for awakening, the awakened state, freedom, state of freedom. Uh, perhaps um, in our modern culture, a word that is maybe a close synonym to deathless or kind of points to the same thing might be uh, timelessness. Um, in a sense of be, uh, being timeless. Uh, I mean, we say that sometimes about certain pieces of literature or you know, art objects, say it's timeless. But uh, the internal experience of being in a timeless moment, kind of feeling that this moment here is timeless. And uh, there are times in life where that stands out very, stands out very, very strongly, where um, maybe sometimes it feels like everything stands still or it feels like we disappear in the experience. There's no us here. It's just this timeless presence. And, um, and maybe with that word timeless, you get a little sense of what uh, the ancient Buddhist might have meant by the deathless, that state where there's no death, no birth, no coming, no going. No movement, nothing happens. Um, and so Brahma said, you know, please open the gates to the deathless, the doors to the deathless, so everyone can experience it, or others can experience it, or know it. Point to it. And um, the Buddha then surveyed 
the world and he decided that there were some people in the world who had but little dust across their eyes. And most people, most of us have a lot of dust. And so it's hard to see what's really there. But um, if you can clear out the dust from your eyes and see clearly, and the dust is not, you know, literally dust, but rather the kind of things that get in the way of our ability to see clearly. And you probably, each of you have some experience of not having seen things clearly. Maybe after the fact, realize, oh, I didn't understand it was that way. Or perhaps you were so filled with desire, you didn't see um, what was really going on there. Or so filled with hate or fear. So there's all kinds of dust that covers the eyes. So the Buddha realized that there were some people had just a little bit of dust in, over their eyes, and so they might be able to understand what he had to teach. And so then um, he went and found the five people who he thought uh, might be most receptive to what he had to teach. And uh, the story is a little bit touching, what happened there. Uh, these were his companions in the ascetic life. And uh, he was ex- uh, practicing ex- extreme asceticism before his enlightenment. And he decided that the ascetic path was not the path to awakening, to freedom. So he gave it up. When he gave it up, his five ascetic companions left him because he was backsliding. He was taking, you know, he was no longer an ascetic. And so he went and found those five ascetics and they saw the Buddha coming as he was walking across towards them. And they said, oh, here comes that slacker. (laughs) I don't think they said it exactly in those words, but... um, here comes, you know, here he comes. And um, let's not, um, I don't exactly remember the exactly details of how they say, but uh, let's not um, give him any real attention or let's not get up to greet him. And so um, they just, sat, just uh, remained seated where they were and the Buddha came up into their midst and spontaneously, Somehow, they were so moved by his presence that they stood up, offered respect, um, and offered him a seat. And uh, even though they said they weren't going to do those things. But there was something about his presence. What is it? You know, here we have back to this sense of presence, timeless presence. Are there some people who walk with a sense of the timeless or the deathless or being free or being at ease. I certainly have met people who I really felt in that person um, uh, there was very little dust. There was very little ego. There was very little movement to being defensive or trying to build themselves up or trying to um, being worried about anything at all or being any, they didn't seem to have any desires about particularly. That seemed to be kind of you know, a filter that through which they were experiencing the world or through which I could experience them. There wasn't, I didn't see their desire there. And it's quite remarkable to meet someone who is clear that way. And so here was the Buddha. And there was this presence there. And that presence must always be remembered, I think, because that was there prior to the beginning of his teaching. Um, so then he tried to teach. And I remember again, you know, he, he was reluctant to teach. He didn't know how he could point to what he had experienced. And so he made it uh, 
what I suppose is uh, his best attempt to do that, and um, which was kind of his formulation of his path, his experience. What what it wasn't so much what he experienced that he was trying to explain to people, because maybe it maybe he, I don't know why he didn't. But there's very little in the discourse of the Buddha where he tries to explain or describe what it is that he experienced with his awakening, with his freedom. Uh, he does use the word deathless at times, but deathless is kind of like a description of absence without death. And so, but, but in terms of a positive description, you know, it was bright light, it was great bliss, uh, it was, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, mystical union with the universe, or, you know, it was the merging of the yin and the yang, or, you know, you know, he didn't, he didn't, the Buddha gives very little positive description of what the awakened, his, his awakened experience was like. But what he does in this first discourse is he describes what he thought people needed to know so they could do the work themselves to come to the same place. So it was kind of a pragmatic approach rather than pointing to something maybe he didn't think they could experience just by describing it. This is what you have to do. This is what you have to understand and what you have to do in order to have this for yourself also. And this was kind of the motivation of the Buddha was not to kind of be a teacher that knew something different than others and stay that way, but rather a teacher that brought people into what he knew and what he experienced. But he realized that other people had to do the work themselves. He wasn't going to zap them. Though his presence was still there, right? Very powerful presence. And you can imagine, you know, these these people who are reluctant to receive his message, you know, actually, um, he, he offered to teach them. And he, they said, no, you know, who are you to teach us something? I don't remember exactly the details, but... And then um, he said, you know, I'm a Buddha now. I'm awakened. And uh, kind of very confident kind of statement. Maybe, you know, in some circles, presumptuous or arrogant. You know, very... Of elaborate, he said, "I'm now awakened, fully awakened," and um, and uh, and you can imagine these these friends of his kind of this pull push. They feel this incredible presence, but they feel like he's kind of left the path that they understand, and they're reluctant to hear what he has to teach. And then he tells them, "You've known me for a long time." Have you ever known something? I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember the details. Have you ever known me to lie and um, or say what is not so? And they said, "No, you've always been completely impeccable." And they said, "Well, I think you should listen to me now." <laughs> and so he does. They do. And so then he describes to people what he feels they need to know so they could experience, attain this liberation that he had attained. And what he describes is what many of you hopefully know very well is the Four Noble Truths. And it could seem a long way from the First Noble Truth to awakening, to freedom. And some people say it's so far away, what in the world does it have to do with it? The First Noble Truth is a truth of suffering. And here we are in the mire of suffering, in the mud of suffering, of you know, so common in this world, and why would we focus on that in order to attain something which is 
the timeless moment or this timeless presence or this freedom from ego, from attachment to self, freedom from all clinging at all, entirely. Why would focusing on suffering be the first thing he'd point to? And the second noble truth, he talks about the cause of suffering, how suffering comes about. And um, why, again, why would you have to study, understand about the cause of suffering? I think because if you're gonna, if you, if, if you're gonna, one of the doorways to liberation is to understand what is locked to that door. What keeps the door locked? And if you understand what the what the lock is, then you can unlock it. But if you don't understand the lock, everything will stay closed. And so the lock for the Buddha uh, or the, is craving. What keeps the lock closed is our clinging, our holding tight to our experience. And, and clinging or craving is kind of a synonym for a wide range of ways that the mind holds on or contracts, gets heavy, is burdened by experience in ways in which the mind kind of brings about its own suffering. So to see that craving... And, then this is where the work is, is to release it, to let go of it. Some things are relatively easy to let go of, and probably all of you have experience of letting go of certain things. Uh, I'm sorry, maybe for this example, it just pops my mind. This is the danger of listening to me as I think of examples on the spot. But, you know, you're driving down the road, and uh, maybe you're in a hurry to get somewhere. And... Um, you're coming towards a traffic light and the traffic light turns yellow. And you have to decide. Do you do you have enough time to go through? Just, you know, are you close enough to that intersection that it makes sense to go through even when it turns yellow? Or do you have to stop? And sometimes maybe it's not so clear. And you have your desire to get somewhere, and you have your sense of what's reasonable to do, and so maybe you have to let go of something. You let go of your speed. You let go of trying to get through there. Or you let go of concerns about tickets. <laughs> there is a wise letting go and not so wise letting go. There's letting go. Some, some, some things are relatively easy to let go of is the point I'm trying to make. And some things are quite difficult to let go of. And some things, it's inconceivable to many of us why someone would want to let go of certain things. Or it's inconceivable that it's possible or it's inconceivable that that it's, you'd still be a human being, you'd still live a normal life as far as you know it, if you somehow emptied yourself or rid yourself of certain kinds of clinging. But here, here you have to kind of remember, go back in your mind if you can, the presence of this man standing there outside of Saranath in ancient India, who had walked for many, many days to find his five ascetic friends, and there was this powerful presence where in his presence they stood up because there's something about that presence. What did he let go of? What had happened to him? They'd known him for many years. What had happened there? How thoroughly, what he, what he would have claimed was he had let go of everything. And, and someone here's someone who let go of everything and meeting someone who let go of everything he wasn't like a dull, flat person. You know, the first thing they thought, thought was, oh, this is a boring guy. Oh, you know, or this is... There was something about him that his radiance is something 
that they stood up to meet him. Once I heard a Dharma talk by a monk that was so inspired that um, when the monk ended the Dharma talk, he got up to leave, just leave. And there was no plan in the room at all for this. Everybody stood up as he walked. You know, kind of like when you stand up for royalty or something, you know. You know, you know, this, you know, it was like, like it just felt. Like everybody felt so moved. Like this is what you had to do. Right? There was no thought. It was just this is what you do because it was such a powerful talk that was given. And um, so, let go of everything. And part of the challenge of Buddhism, or, the, or maybe the offering, the challenge is that um, how thoroughly do you want do you want to let go? So an example that I use this weekend teaching is um, maybe imagine yourself or imagine, maybe you know such a situation, but imagine someone uh, on their deathbed. And this person, or you, hopefully, um, is completely at peace about dying. It's happened that way occasionally. People do that. I remember there was one woman um, a year ago on retreat who was dying probably of cancer. She didn't think she had more. She was told she didn't have much more than six months to live, and and she was anguished about her upcoming death because she had a ten-year-old daughter, and so you know it's a pretty tragic situation in many ways. But uh, one of the counsels that was given to her that made a real impact on her is that how she died would have a huge impact on her daughter. And if she's going to die anyway, if she died worried and afraid, that would be a very powerful teaching to her daughter. But if she could die peacefully, at peace, that would be a very different kind of teaching for her daughter. And what would be better teaching given that she had to die anyway? That was what was going to happen. And that really got her attention. And um, I don't know what happened. I didn't, you know, I, didn't, I wasn't, there wasn't any follow-up for me, so. Um, so there are people who die at peace. And, but you can imagine, maybe yourself on your deathbed, and you know, you, know, you, you, you know that you have maybe an hour left or a few minutes left or a day left or something. And, um, and uh, someone comes in and asks you, you know, um, uh, do you want to know how it's going in the stock market today? <laughs> and that's something maybe in other times was an interest of yours. Or maybe, you know, there's all kinds of things that, um, that you, know, you know, the status of the interest in your bank account. Or um, someone really interested in, in your opinions about home improvement projects in your house. Uh, things that maybe cause certain a lot of uh, stress in your life, uh, you know, earlier in your life. But, you know, a neighbor, perhaps, uh, in backing out of her driveway, uh, bumps into your car and dents and knocks on your door, you know. And, and I, know, I know you only have a couple hours left, but, you know, I want to tell you, you know... <laughs> <laughs> I feel really bad <laughs> about bumping your car, and um, would you mind filling out these forms? And <laughs> you know, it probably kind of pales in importance. You probably have a lot of equanimity. You're probably not going to be caught by those things. 
you know, if you're caught at all, it's like, oh, please leave me alone. But there's all kinds of things that are maybe you, you, would norm, you would normally hold on to and maybe be quite distressed about that it's quite easy to let go of in that context. And how thoroughly does impending death call on us or allow us or encourage us or require of us to let go of very, very deep things. You probably don't care so much about how your hair looks, you know, the last minutes, or whether, you know, your your clothes, your your pajamas are a little bit dirty, you know. It's not that relevant, you know, to what's going to happen. So the mind is at ease about a whole bunch of things that normally maybe wouldn't have been on. So I'm having a little bit trouble kind of conveying, I think, but I think you have to fill in the blank. You have to kind of imagine yourself in the situation and imagine the, you know, how thoroughly the teaching of death would, would allow you or call on you to let go of things that now, living now, you wouldn't want to let go of or you wouldn't think of letting go of. It wouldn't occur to you. So I hope that worked, that exercise, somehow. <laughs> so here's the Buddha coming to see his five ascetics and saying, craving is the second noble truth. And it's possible in the third noble truth to release that craving, to let go of it. And he wasn't talking about craving the stock market necessarily. He was talking about you know, particular kinds of craving. He was talking about every possible craving in your mind. Every possible thing where the mind grabs on, holds on, resists. All the different kind of synonyms for all the variations of clinging or craving. That, that the very roots of it, absolutely everything somehow has been released and uprooted. And that's what he, so that's a third noble truth. And here you imagine this person who's so radiant and luminous giving this teaching and claiming, I have done this. And I imagine that it's somewhat compelling, this teaching. His ascetics were looking for that liberation to begin with. And also his ascetics had done many years of spiritual practice. So that in some sense, we take them as being very mature people, spiritually mature. They let go of a lot already. Ascetics tend to let go, right? But here he was saying, you have to go further. You have to let go of everything. And for those of, for those of them who didn't get it, then the next day he gave a second discourse. And there he talked about letting go of the attachment to self. He let, talked about letting go of seeing self in the body, seeing the self in our feelings, seeing self in our perceptions, seeing self in our thoughts, seeing self in our intentions, seeing self in our um, dispositions, in our attitudes, seeing self in consciousness. He said, don't see for self, don't look for self in all those things. And these ascetics, for people, these people who had let go of so much already, just in telling them that, telling don't look for self in any of these places, they let go. And they experience the same thing as the Buddha. What holds people back from being willing to be interested in letting go? Oh, if I don't, if I let go, I won't have 
these relationships. If I let go, you know, I won't be able to do this and that. There's all kinds of reasons, but you maybe hold back. Are they good reasons? Are there good reasons now? Because, of course, you have 20, 30, 40 years to live, right? So you might as well hold on, you know, for now, right? Or do the, do the reasons start disappearing the closer you get to death? And I think they do for many of us. That's part of the wisdom of old age is the proximity to death that a whole bunch of things just simply don't have the kind of pull that they did earlier in life. Not a lot of 80-year-olds are concerned about their acne or their pimples. Maybe they don't have a lot, but you know, when, you're four, when you're 14, it's a big deal, right? But by the time you get to be 80, you've kind of let go of that one, right? The proximity, you know. So, but there's a lot of things that get, low, get let go of as we get older. Buddhism... Is a, for, is, is a form of premature aging. <laughs> Why wait? <laughs> Why wait? When, wh- 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 why wait, you know, until, you know, and do you have 20 years? Do you have 40 years? How long do you have? Until the reasons that you know the reasons for holding on still seem pale or lose their significance. So the the, the Buddha was passionate, I would say, or, or at least very motivated to try to point to the possibility of a very radical transformation, where the where the every possible clinging or craving in the mind was released. And his teachings were his his, his his profound teachings were meant for people who are interested in that. Now we come to the text that we've been studying these last almost three months now, three months, the Satipatthana Sutta. This is one of the uh, most important texts giving the Buddha's practice instructions. I mean, actually, details for meditation practice for cultivating awareness. And it goes through some <coughs> 16 exercises of developing mindfulness, developing presence. And he says, in developing this mindfulness, this will lead you to liberation. So um, the first nine exercises had to do with developing mindfulness of the body. So I imagine someone who has learned to develop a very strong mindfulness of the body, their their presence in their body, they're here in this body. Where are you you going to be then? You're not going to be lost in your thoughts of the future or the past. Usually people who have a very strong presence in their body are present in this world they're living in. They kind of know the posture they're in when they're sitting or standing. They know what they're doing with their body. They're very aware of the sensations of the body what's happening in their body as they feel things. So, at the beginning, it's developing this very strong presence in the body, physical presence, cultivating, developing that. 
then the next exercise is developing a very strong sensitivity to how we how experience is either pleasant or unpleasant. Becoming hypersensitive, maybe I that's the wrong word, but sensitive, recognizing, tuning into how experiences are pleasant or unpleasant, or neither, that, kind of neutral. Sensitive to becoming kind of being strong presence and using that presence to be sensitive to the quality of that experience we're having in the present moment. And then developing a sensitivity to the states of mind that we have. So there's a strong sense of presence in the mind too. So that aware when the mind it goes through its various kaleidoscopes of different emotional and mental states. When the mind is filled with anger or, or ill will, when the mind is filled with desire, when the mind is uh, filled with beautiful states, when the mind is concentrated, or when the mind is distracted, when the mind is, um, feels um, expansive, or the mind feels contracted. Kind of aware of what goes on in the mind. Sense, very sensitive, maybe minutely sensitive to the quality of the mind, strong presence of what's going on there. And then as, a, then, then as these exercises develop, the person also then develops a very keen sensitivity to the forces that causes us to shut down the light of awareness, kind of covers over our awareness and our presence. We notice how when desire arises and we follow the, the, the lure of desire, that it's kind of nice perhaps, but at the same time there's a kind of a darkening of awareness, kind of darkening of presence. We kind of lose ourselves in the focus of desire. Some kind of loss, loss in touch with ourselves. It might be very, sometimes with the desire you're very alert, very alert. But, like once when I was 14, there was this girl. <laughs> they probably don't say anything more, right? <laughs> I was very alert <laughs> about certain things. But, um, um, you know, or ill will, hate. Can also be very alert, but it's kind of a shutting down, a contraction, and losing touch with that sensitivity, that presence. So aware of these forces that kind of tend to cover up our strong sense of presence, and a person continues practice and also becomes very sensitive to the ways in which we identify to our experience as this is who I am, myself, the way that the selfing happens, the way that Attachment to self happens. Clinging to self happens. Um, uh, uh, building up self. All these things. Wanting people to see us in certain ways. So to, presenting ourselves. Oh, I ate this great Chinese restaurant. And the reason we tell that to people is not because it's good information, but it, 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 it's, it reflects good on you that you chose a good restaurant to eat in. That's probably a bad example, but... <laughs> So then, um, but very sensitive to this kind of how selfing happens and how selfing causes suffering. And then very sensitive to how this, the sense experience we have in the world as we see things, as we see objects in the world, hear things, taste things, very sensitive to how the mind will grasp or resist or get entangled with that experience with thoughts and story-makings, with emotional entanglements, 
with motivational entanglements, wanting or not wanting. So developing the sensitivity, all these sensitivities we talk about. Imagine all that. And then from that, strong sense of presence, strong sense of awareness of all these forces, the person also then starts having, evoking, or these strong, wonderful spiritual feelings or emotions or states of, of mindfulness, very aware of mindfulness, the presence of mindfulness, what it's like, very aware of kind of the um, alertness of investigation, of interest and experience. They're really here and interested. Very aware of their effort, their energy, their vitality, their application, their engagement in, in, with, with life. They feel engaged. Even if they don't have a lot of energy, they feel engaged. And very, very attentive to joy, feeling of joy arises. And attentive and aware of the arising of, of tranquility. And very sensitive and aware of the arising of concentration. And very aware of the arising and presence of a state of equanimity. Aware, very aware of these, these, these high kind of quality issues of the mind or the heart. Quality characteristics, very refined qualities that develop. So it's probably, it should be enough for one lifetime, right? And then comes the last exercise. The very last exercise of this, this whole discourse. And this is the exercise to start orienting yourself as you go about your experience, as you go about your life, Orient yourself through the pers- or or use the perspective, understanding your experience through the framework of the four noble truths. So to notice when there is suffering or stress or tension, it's a whole range of kind of you know closely connected experiences in that family of suffering, but to notice those. And it might be that it's very, very, very subtle. Because sometimes in, in, in deep meditative states or in great blissful experiences, spiritual experiences or whatever, there might still be the remnants of very, very subtle stress or agitation or clinging that might almost be invisible because we're kind of blinded by the beautiful state. But the Buddha says, even in these states, look for where the suffering is, the agitation or the stress, but in all circumstances. And look at where the create, what the cause, look for the cause of that suffering. Look for where the, the holding on is. And then let go. And that's the last of the exercises. Let go. Well, there's one more, is the Eightfold Path. If you can't let go, then practice the Eightfold Path. But let go. And how completely and thoroughly would you like to let go? That's your choice. If you let, as Ajahn Chah said, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. (laughs) If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. It's your choice. So now I'll read. And again, monks, 
A monk abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects in terms of the four noble truths. And how does a monk abide contemplating mind objects as mind objects in terms of the four noble truths? Here, a bhikkhu, bhikkhu understands as it actually is. This is suffering. She understands as it actually is. This is the origin of suffering. He understands as it actually is. This is the cessation of suffering. And she understands as it actually is. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. In this way, he or she abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects internally, externally, and both internally and externally. Or else he or she abides contemplating in mind objects their nature of arising, or their nature of vanishing, or their nature of both arising and vanishing. Or else mindfulness that there are mind objects is simply established to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. And he or she abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how a monk abides contemplating the mind objects as mind objects in terms of the Four Noble Truths. Listen to this. Monks, if anyone, which means you, if anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven years, one of two fruits could be expected for him or her. Either final knowledge here and now, final awakening here and now. Where's here and now? Or if there is a trace of clinging left, non-returnership. One step short of being fully awakened. Let alone seven years. If anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for six years, for five years, for four years, for three years, for two years, for one year, one of two fruits could be expected, the same ones as before, let alone one year. If anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven months, for six months, so we're getting shorter, right? Imagine your death is getting closer. Maybe that's what it's going to... Four months, for three months, for two months, for one month, for half a month, one of two fruits could be expected, either final knowledge here and now, or if there's any trace of clinging left, non-returning. Let alone one month. If anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven days, one of two fruits could be expected. So it was said, with reference to this, that it was said, this is the path, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, namely, the four foundations of mindfulness. That is what the Blessed One said. The bhikkhus, the monks, were satisfied and delighted in the Buddha's words.
So the Buddha said that indeed, he said, the doors of the deathless are already open. The god Brahma said, open the doors of the deathless as if they're all, as if they're closed. And the Buddha's reply to Brahma before he decided to go teach, he said, the doors of the deathless are already open. Which means they're open for you, for all of us, for me. And if they're open, where is that door? It cannot be anywhere else but right here, with you here right now. And if you let go, here and now, you'll step through that door. May it be so.